0: As I was thinking about our text this week and the the big overriding theme that we will be considering this morning, I started trying to think about how I could illustrate to you the difference between words of life and words of death. Now the thing is, is I think that you are all aware of what the difference is when you hear them. The problem is that usually it's when we are the ones speaking when we struggle to know the difference between what are life-giving words and words that are life-taking words. You know, too often a husband will belittle his childhood sweetheart because he's had a difficult day at work. Those are words of death. Or sometimes a wife will be cold and unloving to her man because she feels underappreciated for all the work that she does at home after she has finished her other job that's a 40 hour a week job. Those are words of death. It also happens when your supervisor at work decides to use you as an example of what not to do in front of all of your coworkers again words of death but you know i think that the that one of the most heart-rending and tear-jerking examples of words of death happens between children and adults you see the way a child responds to a, an adult whether that is one of their parents or one of their coaches or a teacher at school or or whatever, the way that a child responds to an adult will often depend on how that adult communicates to the child. The question is, is, is that adult speaking into that child words of life or words of death? The scene plays out in a thousand homes across the country every single day. A child is excited when they, they come home and they've got their, their craft project from school and they want to show it to their mom or dad, but instead of being met with praise for a job well done, the parent tells them to sit down, be quiet, because they're busy with something important. What does that communicate to the child? It tells them this is important. You are not. Words of death. Another common scene in today's culture is when a teenager who is just laughing hysterically tries to show their mom or dad something that they're looking at on their phone. As maybe this hasn't happened to you. Happens to me quite often with my son. He'll be laughing and laughing. I'm like, what are you laughing at? And so he's, he shows me. The parent, in this case, I'll just take it for myself. I look at the phone and try to understand why in the world Caleb thinks something is so funny. And I just don't get it. Whatsoever. I have options there. Unfortunately, what happens more often than not in homes across America is that the parent, instead of trying to understand this obscure meme or what it seems obscure to them, instead of trying to understand it, the parent then goes on a tirade about how they wouldn't know how to live their life if they did not have their cell phone attached to their hand. Have you heard it? And then they tell the child how they need to stop spending so much time on their devices. Then the next day, we see the f- same family sitting in a restaurant waiting on their food, and there's the child looking at his phone. But you know what? As you look at the table, mom, dad, and every single one of the children are staring at their devices rather than interacting with each other at all. What are we telling our children? What are we telling our spouse? Are we speaking words of life? or are we speaking words of death? You know, there's a new commercial that I've seen recently while watching football on, uh, on my streaming service, and it's an ad for a, a brand new car. And to be honest with you, I remembered the ad, but I had no idea what car it was advertising. And so I, I looked it up and I figured it out, but I'm not gonna tell you what it is because that's not the important part. Uh, you see this, this new ad, The scene opens up with this little girl sitting in her living room with a little, looks like a wooden boat, playing as if a blue blanket was the ocean. And the little girl looks up to her, or walks up to her dad and looks up at him and said, Daddy, how big is the ocean? This sounds like a a question that a four year old would come up with, right? How big is the ocean? It's big, go play. That's what a lot of us might say or do. The dad was obviously on a business call, had his cell phone in his ear and he looks down at his daughter and she asks the question and he pulls it away and he said, I think I'm gonna have to call you back. Hangs up his phone puts it in his pocket, takes the little girl by the hand and said, let me show you. They walk out and get into this car that they're selling, of course. Get into this car and they start driving through the city streets and eventually get to a river and go over this big bridge and then once they're out past the river, they're driving through this forest of pine trees and up and over mountains and Finally get to the place where it starts looking like, uh, you know, sandy beach out in front of them. The dad pulls over and the little girl gets out and starts running out to the shore. The commercial ends by saying this, and here's a screenshot from it. Life is defined by the choices we make. What a great commercial. I don't care anything about the car, (laughs) but what a great commercial. Life is defined by the choices that we make. This statement is true. Now obviously they want you to buy the car that they're peddling, but the statement is still true. What choices will you make today? They may seem like insignificant choices to you right now. But even those insignificant choices may prove to be completely life-changing. We can make a choice that has no real bearing on uh, life. I mean, it could just be as simple as hey, I'm going to go to the grocery store today instead of tomorrow. And that simple choice could put you in a situation or a time and place where you find yourself in the middle of a multi-car serious accident. Was it a bad choice? Or is it just the sovereignty of God at work? There are things that you choose that you cannot control. But there are those others, those other choices that you can make, those little decisions in life every day that you can control. And so will you make choices that bring life to those around you? Will you choose to listen and affirm your child even when you're tired and frustrated with other things? Will you be grateful for your spouse even when you feel like you're carrying more than your fair share of the load? Will you extend grace to your spouse when they say thoughtless or uncaring or harsh words? Or here's one for you. Will you rejoice And be glad when people insult you, harass you, or spread false rumors about you. Well, you say, Brother Wade, that's nuts. And I would say to you, yeah, I agree with you in a sense, but at the same time, that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's the Beatitudes. When Jesus said, blessed are you, When men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then goes on and says rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Words of life. Words of death. We have the choice to make. Well in our text today if you want to be... Turning there, we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians again, starting in chapter 2. In our text today, we're going to be introduced to this concept in Scripture that's the concept of the new covenant. The new covenant. Now, a covenant is simply a promise, and so th- when we think about the new covenant, this is god's promise to all mankind that is fulfilled in the person of jesus christ god has made m- multiple covenants throughout the history of scripture and if you go to your community group this week you'll be talking about some of those covenants so he has all of these covenants but the one we're focused on here in second corinthians 2 is that new covenant the The new covenant can be summarized in the message of the gospel. And the word gospel simply means the good news. The good news. And so what is that good news? Well, Paul gave an excellent summary of the good news. Just a page or two back in your Bible in 1 Corinthians 15. He said these words starting in verse 1. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He's saying, don't forget what the gospel is. Don't forget the, the good news. Don't forget about this new promise or covenant that God has given to us. He said, don't forget. Let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Verse 3, it goes on and says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. What's the first most important thing? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What is the gospel It is the simple message, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried, but he did not stay in the grave. He overcame death and because of that is able to give us life. You see, this morning we're going to be talking about the life giving power of the new covenant. The promise that God fulfills in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week in 2 Corinthians 2. And in this passage, Paul is still referring back to that stern letter that he had written to the Corinthian believers in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There is that letter that we do not still have today. And we learn from other passages in In 1st and 2nd Corinthians that this letter was most likely delivered to the church at Corinth by Paul's disciple named Titus. It was Titus who delivered the letter to them. Now remember Paul didn't want to go there himself because he didn't want his visit with them to be filled with conflict and difficulties. And so instead of going there... And calling them out for the things that they were doing wrong. He wrote to them a stern letter. And sent it with Titus to take to the church at Corinth. So Titus was to go to Corinth. He was to deal with the issue. And then after he had dealt with that issue. He was going to go back and meet Paul in the city of Troas. But as we're about to discover... Titus never showed up in Troas, and this became a big worry for Paul. So let's read the scripture this morning. We'll begin in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, and we will read through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. The Bible says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Well this morning, as we look at this unusual and somewhat difficult passage, um, I want us to think about four different things in dealing with the gospel. And the first of those is the polarizing nature of the gospel. The polarizing nature of the gospel. You see, when confronted with truth, there is no middle ground. If you are confronted with the truth, you either have to accept the truth as truth or reject the truth as a lie or meaningless to you. You accept it or reject it. There are no other options. And so this is why the gospel is so polarizing. So much of our culture today stresses inclusivity. Have you heard that term lately? A whole lot, I'm sure. Our culture stresses inclusivity. But folks, the simple fact is the gospel of Jesus Christ preaches exclusivity. Not that we want to be exclusive of anyone, but it is simply the fact that the gospel is exclusive. Jesus said in John 14 that He is the way. There is no other way. He is the truth, and there are no others who embody that truth. He is the life, and there is life in no other name but Jesus All roads do not lead to God. There is one way. Jesus says that way is a narrow way. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. When Paul sent the stern letter with Titus to the believers at the church in Corinth, Paul knew that. That there were some truth bombs in that letter that could cause some to choose to reject the truth. He recognized the difficulty that he was putting those people in because he was sharing the truth with them. And then they had to choose, will I obey the truth or will I reject it? This is why chapter 2 verse 4 says that he wrote to them out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. It was hard for him to write this letter, but he loved them so much that he could not ignore the issues that were going on. He had to address these things. The problem was, is he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have even postal service, to to be able to find out what happened. He wrote this letter out. He put it in the hands of his trusted disciple, Titus, and he sent Titus on his way. And so he had no idea as to what their response was going to be. He had no idea if they had heard the things that he was saying. He had no idea if they they felt like they were being attacked by him rather than the way he intended it. And that was out of great deep love for them. He is trying to speak truth into their life. He had no idea. And so as a result, when he didn't find Titus in the city of Troas like they had prearranged to do, he was troubled. He was anxious. He could get no peace in his heart. And so, rather than staying there in Troas, even though there was an open door for ministry, and by the way, he does go back later in his ministry to Troas, even though there was an open door at that time, he moved on and he went to Macedonia, the next stop along the way to get to Corinth in the province of Achaia. Why did he go? He was hoping to find Titus. He was trying to find out what's going on in Corinth. He wanted a report about their response to this stern letter. This this passage of scripture uh, presents us with a, a unique challenge in our culture today. And the challenge is this. How do we stand for the truth of God's word and still love the world with the love of Jesus Christ? How do we stand up for truth without alienating everyone else around us? Is it possible to stand for truth? Without offending others. Folks, I'll just be frank with you. This is the tightrope that I find myself traversing almost daily. How do I stand for the truth that is God's word. And yet be someone who is at least somewhat received in our culture. That the words that I'm saying are palatable for those whose world view Is totally opposed to a Christian worldview. We cannot, we will not ever change the message of the gospel. Amen. Thank you, Brother George. We will not ever change the message of the gospel. But folks, we must seek non offensive ways to communicate that gospel so that people will at least. Listen to what we have to say. If we come in being offensive, they'll turn us off. They'll call us names. And yes, we will get called names. Even when we're trying to be loving, we'll get called names. We'll be falsely accused. But what did Jesus say? Blessed are you when men revile you persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It will happen. We need to rejoice in that. But folks, we've got to seek non-offensive ways to communicate that truth. You know, I believe our culture is possibly farther away from the truth of God's word than it has ever been at any time in the history of our country. The culture has departed from the truth of God's word. You can find people here in the buckle of the Bible belt who have never heard of Jesus Christ, who have never picked up God's word and read a single line in it. When people are so far away from God, our goals when we're witnessing to them must be incremental. What do you mean by that? Well, when I say our goals for witnessing must be incremental, I mean that it must be a step-by-step process. We cannot take someone who has no understanding of who God is and expect them to make a, a authentic confession of sin and repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. We can't go from point A to point Z without moving them incrementally through some steps. On the screen, no I do not expect you to be able to read that just in case you're wondering. But on the screen I have... What is called the Evangelism and Discipleship Scale, put out by an organization called Good Soil. And the idea behind this scale is uh, something that I've, I've been aware of for many years, but this is more expanded. It's based off of the same concept as the Engel Scale. And it, it is a, a process by which you try to evaluate where a person is in their spiritual walk, in their their spiritual worldview and try to move them closer to the place where they will be ready to receive jesus christ as their personal lord and savior and so it goes from a negative 12 at the bottom up to a positive 12 at the top and in the middle is repentance and trust in jesus christ that's why it's evangelism and discipleship scale So it starts out with negative 12 being that you are born into this world with a God-shaped vacuum within yourself. There's something in you that is empty, that points you to say, there is something bigger than me, but I don't know what it is. And so that's negative 12, but negative 11, you move up. To an awareness that there is a higher power. And negative 10. I have a personal emptiness. Now I'm not going to go through all 25 of these steps this morning. I will tell you this. If you want a copy of this scale. I'll be more than happy to, to make it available to you. But the point is. Gone are the days when we can walk up and knock on a door and ask someone, have you come to the place in your personal life where you can know for sure that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? They have no frame of reference. What would you say if you were to die and Jesus were, or God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? They have no frame of reference. We've got to move them incrementally through this process toward the gospel. The gospel, folks, is polarizing, yes. But we must do all that we can to model love and pray for those who need to know Jesus Christ model love not be offensive model love speak truth in love pray for those who need Jesus we need to do all that we can to challenge their worldview without offending them in that process because as soon as we offend someone we have lost our ability to speak with them again in evangelism training i went through years ago we were taught over and over and over again the goal of your witness is to gain another hearing in fact uh at back then, and well, that was a long time ago now. Uh, over 20 years ago, they said it would take somewhere uh, between 7 and 14 hearings of the gospel before a person would trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I wonder what that number is today. We've got to do all that we can to model love, to pray to challenge their worldview. And we've got to do all that we can to teach the basics of the gospel. We need to teach people who God is, who we are, and our, our status as sinful human beings, and, and the, the wages of sin, and what that has ha- caused in our lives. And the fact that death is a divine judgment from God. And if we do not trust in Christ, then that divine judgment in death is separation from God for all eternity. We need to teach them about Jesus Christ who is that bridge of grace from death unto life. How that He died for our sins. How that He was uh, resurrected from the grave in order to give us that life. And we receive that by faith. We trust in Jesus. And then we live our life both in the here and now in spiritual growth and we have the promise of eternal life in the life hereafter. Those, that's the basics. That's the, the essence of the gospel. We've got to do all that we can to teach those that do not know the truth those basics of the gospel. And then we have to trust in the potency of the gospel the potency of the gospel you see folks the gospel is powerful and we've got to trust that god is going to make sure that the the truth of his word accomplishes that which he wants it to accomplish Here in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul starts talking about uh, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him and how that we are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And it goes on, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing or among those who are dying. So I want to think about the power and the pervasiveness of aromas. An aroma is potent. It is able to permeate through just about anything. Let me give you an example. Let's say you walk into the house and your spouse is cooking bacon. What a wonderful thing to walk into, isn't it? I mean, you could walk in the, in the other end of the house. You could be down in the basement and the, the aroma of the bacon permeates every square inch of the house. Or even more potent than bacon, smoked meat. All right? When you smoke meat, you can smell it for blocks away. I mean, we'll walk out in our backyard and we'll, oh, someone's grilling tonight. They might be a half a mile away, but you can smell it. Why? Because the aroma is potent. Now, not all aromas are pleasantly potent, are they? As you know, I I shared with you, uh, my wife was on a prayer retreat uh last weekend and uh where she was staying it had a porch on the on the back of of her little room there and um she was sitting out on the porch it was about dusk and and all of a sudden she heard something down um in the in the bushes and the trees and so she looked out over the the deck and she saw something waddling kind of bouncing and then she noticed a very large stripe down its back she told me later which she's back in kids time this morning so she's not here to defend herself but she told me later immediately the first thing that she thought was can skunks climb (laughs) well the skunk was fine he was just wandering around doing his normal uh, thing there at dusk um... she was she was watching and then all of a sudden she, she couldn't find him anymore, started to worry again, can skunks climb? And then all of a sudden she heard something else over there, and there's another one. Not too long after that, though, apparently the skunks were scared because the aroma became potent in the air. And that's when Joanna walked back in her room and closed the door tightly and quickly. You see, folks, an aroma can permeate. And the scripture tells us that we are the fragrance of the knowledge of God. That we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. We are called to be the aroma of Christ. So what kind of aroma will our witness be are we going to be the smoked meat or the bacon kind or the skunk spray kind what kind of aroma will we be now the next thing that we notice here is that the gospel brings life to those who believe and it brings death to those who do not Notice verse 16, it says, To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You see, we are to serve as the aroma that draws people to the gospel. But how they respond to that aroma, how they respond to that witness, is not our responsibility. We have no responsibility for how they respond only to be a witness. What is a successful witness? It is communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is moving a person from one step further away from Christ to one step closer to that decision to trust in Christ. But folks, God does not call us to save people. God calls us to be faithful witnesses of what he has done in us. The next thing we notice here is that the preaching of the gospel is commissioned and empowered by God. Notice what it says in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I love the word picture here in verse 17. For we are not peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, we speak in Christ. The gospel isn't something that we're trying to sell to people. It should be the essence of our lives that oozes out of us in every situation that we find ourselves in each day. When that's the kind of witness that we are. That is authenticity in ministry. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 reminds us it says for the word of God is Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. God is going to bring about whatever his will is for his word. It is our goal to be a living testament of his word. There's an old song sung by the Imperials and when I you know some of you are thinking well maybe it's not that old but it's got to be close to 40 years old. One of my old favorite old gospel songs. It's a song that's titled You're the Only Jesus. The chorus of this song says this, cuz you're the only Jesus some will ever see. You're the only words of life that some will ever read. So let them see in you the one in whom is all they'll ever need. Because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. What is oozing out of your life day by day? What will people see when they look at your life? What words will they read when they're examining your daily walk? Will they read words of life? Or will they see words of hope? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So my question is, is will our lives point to him? Or will we be a stumbling block to those people that are around us because of our inauthenticity. We said before, this young generation, the largest generation our country has ever known. Gen Z. The thing that matters most to Gen Z and honestly to millennials as well. Authenticity. No hypocrisy. And just frankly, my generation of Gen X and and some of you who are baby boomers, um, I think we got way too comfortable with hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Preaching, do as I say, but not as I do. Folks, we've got to be authentic. Authentic. In our daily walk with the Lord. The next two things I want to share with you. Hopefully will go a little bit uh, quicker than the the first two. But let's move on to chapter 3. Looking at verses 1 through 3. The next thing that we see in this passage. Is the proof of the gospel. You see the proof of the gospel. Is changed life is a changed life. Paul asks them some rhetorical questions here in verse one. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation from you? Why is he asking these questions? He's trying to make a point. I think the point was, Paul is saying, look, do you want us to toot our own horn? Do you want us to, to stand before you and tell you all the reasons you should listen to us? No. No. Because the fruit of their lives was the evidence that was known and read by all, it tells us. The proof of the gospel is fruit. You see, obedient responses to truth are the fruit of the gospel. Paul was so concerned about how the believers at Corinth were going to respond to that stern letter. He had hoped that they would respond in a positive way to that letter that Titus had delivered. But Titus wasn't there. He had no idea what what had happened. But then he found out that they did respond positively. That they did obey the things that Paul had written to them. And so he says to them, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us. You see, there was evidence because of their response to the truth. This obedient response is proof that the gospel had done its redeeming work in the hearts of these Corinthians. Matthew chapter 7, in that same sermon that I quoted from earlier when Jesus was preaching to those folks sitting on the mountainside. Matthew 7 verse 17, Jesus says this, he said, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So I wonder today, if people were to inspect the fruit of your life, what conclusion would they reach would there be proof of the gospel and the power of the gospel at work in you if they were to examine your life the proof of the gospel is in the fruit and i've said this many times i'll say it again God has not called us to judge anyone, but he has called us to be fruit inspectors. The last thing I want us to notice here in the last three verses, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, is the sufficiency of the gospel. The sufficiency of the gospel. You see, it goes on and it says, let me read it again because it's been a minute since we read it. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Folks, we have confidence in Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, in the hearts of all those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. The Holy Spirit is working, and our sufficiency is found in Jesus Christ. Not in anything that we can say or anything that we can do. It's not because of uh, the great things that are coming out of us, which, by the way, is the work of the Holy Spirit, not us. It's because of Jesus, because the spirit is in us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our sufficiency is in him. The new covenant in Christ, unlike the old covenants, which brought death and condemnation, the new covenant in Jesus Christ gives us life. In Colossians chapter 2, there's a passage of scripture there that I thought about just pulling one or two verses from and I thought, no, I just want you to hear the whole thing. And so bear with me for a moment while I read 12, 13 verses from Colossians chapter 2. Just sit back and and listen, if you would. I'll be reading this from the New Living Translation, so hopefully it'll be a, a little more simplistic and clear as I read it. Colossians 2, verse 6, it says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him, and let your lives be built on Him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies or high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. You were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead. Because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature. uh, Sorry. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. And took it away by nailing it to the cross. The sufficiency of the gospel, sufficiency of Jesus Christ to solve all of our sin problems is phenomenal. Folks, that is what the new covenant is. We're going to continue talking about these covenants, like I said, in our community group. We're going to talk about this new covenant again uh, next Sunday. They, you know as we move further on in this passage. But here's what I want you to take away this morning. When it comes to the old covenant, or what we might say, the letter of the law, the old covenant kills. You see, the Mosaic covenant, which you might just call the Ten Commandments, the laws that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai the Mosaic Covenant was given to point people to their need of a Savior because there was no way that they could possibly keep the whole law. In fact, James 2.10 says, "Forever Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point. He's guilty of all. So what does that guilt bring? Romans 6 tells us, that the wages or the penalty for sin is death. The old covenant kills. But the new covenant, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, that new covenant gives us life. Romans 6:23 that I just quoted, "For the wages of sin is death but it goes on and says the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord Paul says it beautifully in just a couple chapters later in second Corinthians we'll look at it soon verse 17 he says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold The new has come. All of this. All of this new covenant. He says. Is from God. Who through Christ. Reconciled. Us. To himself. Praise God. Praise God for the reconciliation. That we have. Because of the death. The burial. and The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel. The new covenant. The question are. The question is, are you living each and every day in the life-giving power of the new covenant? What kind of aroma are you to those around you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together and for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that you sit <clears throat> That you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, I just thank you that uh, you have forgiven us of so much. Lord, help us to see our need for salvation. Lord, if there is anyone here today that does not know you, that's never truly trusted in you, or Lord, maybe there's someone here that, that thinks they trusted in you, but They look at their life and there's just no fruit. Lord, convict them of their need to trust in you as their Savior today. Lord, help us to be a sweet aroma drawing all people to you and salvation in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.